Hello and welcome to Haaretz Weekend. I'm Allison Kaplan-Summer. On today's show... Washington, D.C. battles heat up as the progressive wing of the Democratic Party continues to swing leftward on Israel. Later on the show, we'll talk about how Israel should respond to these changes with Peter Lerner, the former IDF international spokesman. But first, let's discuss how these internal struggles on the left in Congress unfolded with a real Beltway insider, Hadar Suskin, CEO of Americans for Peace Now. Hadar, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. So Hadar, as you said, a Beltway veteran, you've watched the dynamics of progressive politics in Washington, D.C. for quite a while. You've been director of Ben the Ark Jewish Action, vice president for policy and strategy at J Street, Washington director for the Jewish Council for Public Affairs. Haaretz D.C. Bureau Chief Ben Samuel spoke to you for his story, Progressive Lawmakers Under Fire After Visiting Israel, describing the problems that progressive members of Congress are having with leftist groups and grassroots activists after they traveled to Israel and engaged with Israeli government officials. A central figure in his story is uh, Representative Jamal Bowman of uh, New York. So just to put him in context, Bowman's pretty new on the scene, right? Yes, this is just his first term in Congress, I believe. Right. So he was elected in 2020. He upset 16-term incumbent Elliot Engel, who was this linchpin, I guess, of what we call traditional pro-Israel positions in the mainstream of the Democratic Party. And he was recruited to run by the Justice Democrats. He said he was inspired by Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. He's a member of the Democratic Socialists of America. And when he gets elected, he joins the squad as his first male member, right? Yes, I will say he's a member of the squad, although that's not really an official thing. Mm -hmm. And he's a DSA member, but not one in good standing. And we'll get to that. So the squad is basically Ocasio-Cortez, Rashida Tlaib, Ilan Omar, Ayanna Presley, and another newcomer, Cori Bush. And they're kind of roughly grouped together as young-ish people of color uh, who are supported by the Justice Democrats, right? So our story begins last December. Bowman gets invited to Israel, tour with J Street, and he goes, as one does on these trips. He meets with a whole array of senior Israeli officials. And then what happens? Right. So one of the first things that we saw in response to that was from DSA, from Democratic Socialists of America, who, again, have endorsed him, encouraged and inspired him to run pretty much an attack. And, you know, it was framed as an attack on him for doing this. But I think he was really just the vehicle. He was the catalyst for this. What it was was an attack on engagement with Israel at any level. And so he was widely criticized for going. And again, you know, going, like you said, on a J Street trip. So this wasn't so much a question of disliking the views of the organization that led the trip or protesting because they met with some particularly egregious right-wing leader or didn't meet with Palestinian leadership. It was really protesting the very simple fact of a member of Congress going to Israel at all. And so did this take you sort of in the rest of the progressive pro-Israel, pro-peace organizations in D.C. by surprise? Is this a new move? It was new, but it was a next step in something that we've been seeing. The politics of this issue 
have changed tremendously, certainly over the last few decades. But honestly, the politics of this issue have changed tremendously in the last two years. I mean, you talked about the squad, although they're not the only ones. We've seen a voice that is now in Congress to some extent and reaching out to Congress in a way that didn't happen before, that is not talking just about Palestinian human rights, is not a progressive pro-Israel voice in any way. It is a voice that is saying Israel is entirely illegitimate and you shouldn't engage with that at all. And so they've been doing that in a number of ways. This was, as far as I know, the first sort of big statement saying it vis-a-vis trips, right? In the past, people have been critical of members of Congress who've gone on an APAC trip if they don't like APAC. Or obviously, people on the right have been critical of people for going with J Street. But that, again, was about who you were engaging with and what the political narrative was. It was not about the simple fact of engaging with the state of Israel. Approximately a month after all this happens, Bowman announces that he's removing his co-sponsorship of legislation, which is called the Israel Relations Normalization Act. It's aimed at strengthening and expanding the Abraham Accords and committing to voting no should it come to the House for a vote. So that's quite a 180 degree turn from co-sponsoring it to saying, oh, I'm going to vote against it. Bowman says he made a mistake in seeing it as an opportunity to make progress towards justice and a two-state solution. The Accords, he said, include deals that are, quote, at odds with human rights and safety for everyday people in the region. And he explains that he reached this decision after speaking to a diverse group of constituents, experts and organizations and meeting with both Israeli and Palestinian officials. So Hadar, what went on here behind the scenes and is there a connection to the J Street backlash and this move? Sure. Well, there's definitely a connection. I mean, Bowman is in some ways sort of the poster child for this. It's very simple politics, really. Like you said, he defeated Elliot Engel He was elected from a district that, you know, this is not AOC's district. It is not the most left, most progressive district in the country, certainly not when it comes to Israel issues. It's a relatively heavy Jewish constituency and a relatively conservative Jewish constituency. Not all of them, of course, but, you know, on the aggregate. And so he's got this balance of, as you said, wanting to be part of the squad, wanting to be part of, you know, the the most progressive end of the Democratic caucus. And at least when it comes to Israel and Israel-Palestine related issues, that's not necessarily representative of his constituency, or at least the uh, one particular part of his constituency. And, you know, every member of Congress faces this challenge. How much are they simply reflecting the views of their constituents versus how much do they have, obviously, their own political opinions and agenda that they're trying to push? So he's in a precarious situation here. And so the attacks around his participation in the J Street trip were one high profile element. The action around this piece of legislation was high profile because it is demonstrating the forces that are acting on him, right? It's almost like he's the boulder and you've got the wind and the rain and you've got all the different pieces trying to push him in different directions. So his original co-sponsorship of this bill was an effort to represent his more conservative constituents, whether those are Jewish or conservative, more right-wing pro-Israel Christians, whoever they may be. This was something that they wanted. This was a bill that APAC and federations and ADL and those kind of organizations were supporting and their supporters urged him to do it, which he did. And it was relatively low stakes, frankly. I mean, honestly, his commitment to vote no on this should it come up for a vote is irrelevant to whether or not it's going to pass. 
And the bill itself is hardly a high stakes, really meaningful piece of legislation. It's much more of, as we often see, really a messaging bill. So it's important to people who are observers in this space that he switched because it signifies something. It's not substantively very important. And so one of the things that we saw is when he did make this statement, the folks who had originally urged him to support the bill were upset and said so, not surprisingly. The people who had urged him to switch, he didn't get a lot of love for it. There were, you know, tweets and statements out there saying, basically, well, finally, he promised us he would do this, you know, bare minimum of a thing months and months ago, and he's only getting around to it right now. So it really shows you sort of the between a rock and a hard place situation that Bowman is in. And some of them said, oh, the only reason he did it was because he did it after his uh, district got changed and some of the more conservative Jewish parts were cut out of it, right? Yes, that was part of the statements. I looked at that and I said, yeah, and I mean, I don't actually see why that's even, you know, they said that as if it was some negative, as if he doesn't get credit for it then. But New York was going through redistricting. They changed his district. A big chunk of the more conservative constituency was removed. So it actually makes perfect sense that he is now being responsive to his current constituency. But again, he's got folks pushing him from within his district and from without from both sides of this. The drama plays out with Bowman. And then in Ben's article, he describes another wave of backlash following last week's visit to Israel, led by House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, and that progressive activists are now focusing their attention on Democratic representatives Ro Khanna, Barbara Lee, and Andy Kim, who are the three members of the Congressional Progressive Caucus who participated in this delegation led by Pelosi. How did their response to the criticism, backlash for visiting Israel and meeting with Israeli officials resemble Bowman's, and how did it differ? One really key part that I think is important in how it resembled is that, again, you listed Barbara Lee, Ro Khanna, and Andy Kim. And when you take them together with Jamal Bowman, you're talking about all representatives who are people of color. It's interesting to note the strategy from the folks that are attacking them and pushing them. When you look at who's being criticized, who's being attacked here, they are really singling out, first of all, progressives, and second of all, progressive members of color. To be clear, they're not doing it because they're racist. They're doing it because that's who they think they can impact and influence. And it's a very clear strategy to try to force, frankly, those people to further align with the, I guess, the views of these activists and distance themselves from Israel. And I have to say, you know, I've seen a lot of different strategies, a lot of different tactics from right and left over the years. Some I think are smart, some less so. I think this is a terrible, terrible tactic. And I think that the idea of saying, again, to leading House members, leading appropriators, important people who, by the way, are progressive voices when it comes to this, you know, to pushing those members and saying to them, as they did with the hashtag they were using, which was apartheid delegation, if you're doing this, you're supporting apartheid and that there's no way to engage with Israel that is seen as legitimate, even though, again, they, you know, tweeted their experiences of meeting with Palestinian, both political leaders and civil society leaders, of doing a Jerusalem tour with Danny Seidemann, you know, other things to show that they were really getting important perspective. They were not just there getting some sort of, you know, right-wing Israel Disneyland tour. And yet still they were attacked for this. That is an extremely, extremely fringed view 
forget within the Jewish community overall, I don't think there's any member of Congress, including the squad members, not Rashida Talib, not Ilhan Omar, who I think would agree with that. As we know, both Talib and Omar wanted to go to Israel. I think that that tactic and singling out people who they are presuming to be the most likely to be susceptible to their pressure, I think is a bad tactic and a very troubling one. I think if you care about better future for Israel and Palestine and Israelis and Palestinians, you want educated members of Congress who are going to be engaged, who are going to understand the details and what's going on. I can tell you that we at Americans for Peace Now worked very closely with the members who were going on that delegation. We helped them formulate questions for the Israeli leaders and Palestinian leaders who they were going to be meeting with them. We wanted them to know about what's going on in Sheikh Jarrah. We wanted them to know about Eviatar. We wanted them to know about the issues on the ground so that they can be a force for for change and for for a better future. And telling them that they should just disengage, I think, is a self-defeating idea. How do you feel? I mean, trying to operate in the progressive arena and make alliances and connections with this new, it seems like, application of anti-normalization, or, you know, you could even use the word boycotting of all things Israeli in order to show your dissatisfaction with Israeli policy instead of engaging. I wonder if it was foreshadowing. I'm sort of uh, mentally rewinding to uh, more than a year ago, right, when uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez canceled on your event, which was to honor uh, Yitzhak Rabin as a peacemaker. Where does that leave you when you're operating in this arena? For the most part, I think this is in Washington and in progressive spaces, still a very fringe opinion. We work very closely with a broad range of progressive organizations that are engaging not only around Israel, but around you know all, all sorts of issues. And overwhelmingly, we are invited into, welcomed into those conversations, those coalitions. I'm not finding anyone saying to us, no, you're not, you can't be here because you are Zionist or you support Israel. There are people pushing that. That's what this effort was, this apartheid delegation thing. And that goes back to things like the Sunrise Movement fiasco. So it's out there. It's real. It is still the fringe right now. And I think certainly when it comes to Congress, again, I don't want to rehash the uh, Rabin event too much, but I can say that we certainly are in touch with and work with Congresswoman Ocasio-Cortez's office. And Congresswoman Tlaib and Congresswoman Omar and Congresswoman Bush and the rest of the squad and all the rest of the progressive members of Congress. And so it is not even a minority opinion in Congress to say that people should be taking this sort of, as you phrased it, boycott position. Well, it sounds like you have your work cut out for you, Hadar. (laughs) There's plenty to be done. That's for sure. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It was really great to have you on the show. Well, thank you again for inviting me. It was really a a pleasure to get to talk with you. My next guest is Peter Lerner. Most people know him as the former IDF spokesperson, or they knew him when he was the IDF spokesperson. Uh, He's a retired lieutenant colonel who's now working as the director general of the International Relations Division of the Histadrut, the General Federation of Labor in Israel. So you went from big military to big labor, right? Oh, yeah. (laughs) Power to the people. We just discussed with Hadar Suskind the shifts in the left wing of the Democratic Party in the U.S. and the pressure coming from activists associated with the Justice Democrats, the Democratic Socialists of America. 
not only to support conditioning aid to Israel or BDS or on any of these issues, but pressuring members of Congress not to hold dialogue with Israeli officials at all, not to come on trips to Israel, not even with J Street and have those kind of interactions. So there's kind of an irony, right, when uh, Rashida Tlaib and Ilan Omar wanted to come and President Trump pressured uh, Netanyahu to keep them out. And so now one wonders if they would even want to come, if they'd be even, you know, willing to come over. I mean, it's not like they rushed to return once uh, Netanyahu and Trump were no longer in office. So, you know, as a strategic communications consultant, how would you respond to this pressure on members of Congress not even to dialogue at all. What do you do with that? I think what we've seen in recent years is power politics and local politics playing into the international arena. So when we have politicians from the Democratic Party coming to Israel, there is always going to be a fringe that's saying, why the hell are you going there? And if I was consulting these these individuals, I would, first of all, in the preparation before coming to Israel, I would say, you know, you have to be aware that there are going to be people in your party, in your constituency, that are not going to be happy with this trip. So we need to create the context of why is it our responsibility as leaders, as people that are responsible for the taxpayers' money in the U.S., why is it important that we go and see what is going on? Who can be the people that can be the honest brokers of any type of peace between Israel and Palestine? In that respect, I think that they have a huge impact that can benefit the situation in Israel. And I think that should be a core message that they bring along with them. They are looking to learn how we can move the situation here forward, despite this, the political situation in the region. We've had, thankfully, a new government which has a wide spectrum that can actually create a room for dialogue, which has not existed in the last 10, 12 years. Add to the fact that the last two years have been politically crazy here, when it's everything has been a political tool in the Israeli discourse. So obviously, people coming here are going to have a challenge before they've even arrived. So I would say you have to come here. But you have to be prepared for those people that are going to criticize you. This phenomenon in the Democratic Party and this wing of the Democratic Party, when Benjamin Netanyahu was prime minister, he basically kind of, you know, dismissed it as fringe and he used it to increase sort of the, the partisan distinction that he made between Republicans as friends of Israel and Democrats as enemies of Israel. Obviously, this government is trying to shift that focus. You're now, right, officially a member of the Labour Party. You're That's working for the history after all these years of not showing your politics because you worked in the military. So do we take this seriously as the future of the Democratic Party and have to strategize around it? Do we, again, say, oh, it's a fringe phenomenon, you know, we've got so many friends of Israel, quote unquote, in the uh, Democratic Party, and we ignore it? Do we look at it as the future generational change and confront it? How do we look at the move to the left of parts of the Democratic Party, representatives in Congress? Alison, I think that it still is a fringe phenomenon. It, can it spread, perhaps? But I do think, and you know, if we just look over the last two weeks, and speaking to some of my colleagues, I know that there have been about 70 Democratic delegates that have been here in the last two weeks. So it goes to show that they're coming en masse. They, are, they want to learn. They want to convey their concerns. They want to push their agenda as well in their deliberations between the Israeli government and the U.S. administration and their representatives and their constituencies. So I think Israel needs to be very cautious not to give the fringe the platform. We can't get involved in the internal politics, but we need to empower those people that want to come and see and learn and listen and criticize 
a place to do that. If you shut them out, if they don't come, that is when we begin losing because then we don't have a seat at the table. And some of these fringe elements, the people that are actually pushing people and ostracizing politicians for coming here, they're not really interested in Israel. They would r rather us just disappear. And we don't plan on that happening, I hope. And I think the politicians coming here are also sending them a message. You know, this is Israel. Israel is here to stay. We need to work with Israel because of, there's a huge spectrum of interests. And those interests are joint interests with the U.S. policy. So, yeah, there are things that we won't agree with. And there's issues of, with promoting peace with the Palestinians. And those are things that we need to push forward. But you can't do it if you're not talking. You know, there's a Welsh saying that he who'd be a leader must be a bridge. And these are, these are the people that can do it. These are the honest brokers. These are the people that come from mixed backgrounds, people that are people of color. They're, they are people that can bring something new to the table. So I would say from an Israeli perspective, we need to embrace that in a way that empowers them, gives them the ability to listen to what Israel has to say from across the political spectrum. As you know, you look at our government today, who would have thought that this, is, this would be the situation? Every day we wake up in the morning, we rub our eyes and say, is this really happening? And it's still here. And, you know, so it's moving on. And these are the people that have been elected. And I think on both sides of the ocean, we have to make sure that that dialogue is continued because only through dialogue can we actually have any sort of progress. With this increased pressure on the progressive members of Congress, even, you know, some who are not, you know, in their nature hostile to Israel, they come under an incredible amount of pressure in the progressive community, again, to, you know, not dialogue. I've heard people on this side in their trips to Washington from the Labor Party, from the Merits Party, some of these members of Congress are interested or willing to talk to them and meet with them, but not in public, you know, sort of secret conversations. Do you think that that's something that representatives on the left side of the uh, Israeli political spectrum have a responsibility to do? Or do you think that they should say, you know, if you want to keep me a secret, I'm not interested in meeting with you and, and talking to you? I would say there are certain members of Congress that I would definitely keep it out of the press. But I do think that you need to be engaging across the spectrum. If it happens only behind the scenes, then it's not actually getting the effect that both sides actually want. You know, these are people we can talk to and solve problems with. At the end of the day, the discourse and the dialogue is the foundations of progress, not ignoring or keeping it you know, under the table or, or hiding the existence of that engagement. And you have to think of, of methods that will make it more acceptable, even for those fringe. You know, if they will, in some cases, try and shut it down completely, you know, you, whether it's Israeli politicians or ambassadors. We see it in Europe where they're shouted down in universities and so on. And it happens. It's happened in New York with Danny Dayan. So I would say you can't yield to the fringe and the extremist elements. You have to be aware that it is, you know, we are in a time where Twitter politics and hashtag politics empower radical fringe extremist elements in a way that they are, you know, the whole notion of cancel culture, it all evolves around shouting you down. So do we let them shout us down? Do we say, okay, listen, you know, I'm listening to you because you vote in my district. How does that affect me? I can listen to you. What did I promise you during the election? I think that these are things that are in this day and age of how politics is managed and how social media is influencing how public discourse is taking place and public administration is a notion where we have to take into consideration that it's part of the play. It's part of the game. It's part of the reality of addressing the people. You know, you can't please all the people all the time. And I think you need to address those on the fringe, but keep them at the fringe. 
And that, I think, is the challenge of almost every politician around the world today, definitely here in Israel and also in the U.S. But when you're talking about public messaging and communication strategy, you know, talking about messaging to a younger generation of people who look at the squad, who look at these dynamic politicians, many of them of color, people who strongly support them on climate change and on social justice issues and on racial justice, etc. But part of that package these days is, you know, free Palestine without very much nuance. You may say, okay, the politicians themselves are fringe and we don't necessarily have to dialogue with them, but you do have to send a message to the constituents and to especially young people who admire and identify with them. What's your message to the younger people? And I would absolutely say that, that we have a lot more in common just from my new job in the world of work where labor rights and workers' rights, they are human rights. And I would definitely say that we need to identify the common interests of those people. The politicians are pushing those issues forward as well. So we need to create the common ground for dialogue. We can't win all the time. And I don't think we need to aspire to win. We need to identify the people that are open-minded enough to have a discourse with us, but not that their mind isn't too open, that their mind falls out. You have to have that engagement and you have to create the messaging that appeals to them. And definitely, I mean, Israel is doing wonderful things in issues of climate and it's contributing now. And it's the Prime Minister Bennett went to Glasgow and made all of these promises. So we're at the table. So there are things that we can do. And you know, people will say in this time of cynicism, people will say, yeah, it's pinkwashing, greenwashing, whatever. But I do think there are real issues that Israel has to bring to the table and can debate with the squad and beyond. I would say that, you know, we have to try and create those opportunities to speak specifically because who else do you speak to? I mean, America is Israel's greatest friend. And during the Netanyahu era, when he basically divided and conquered and basically conquered and left everybody else out to dry, Israel is paying a price for that. And I think the pendulum and what you see today in the post-Trump era is all part of this discourse. And that's why it can be the, the voices on that fringe can be so radical and so basically you know, delegitimizing the ability to actually even engage. So what is it we want? We want the ability to talk. We want the ability to agree to disagree sometimes. And I do think that from our perspective, from an Israeli perspective, we need the ability to listen what our friends from America are saying to us about how the American public is feeling more and more against certain issues that are happening here. If that debate doesn't happen, then everybody's losing out. Thanks so much, Peter, for coming on the show. And that's it for this episode of Haaretz Weekend. Thanks to my guests, to our producer, Shani Aviram, and to our editor, Maya Bendisan. I'm Allison Kaplan-Summer, and until next time, Shabbat Shalom from Tel Aviv. <laughs>